Um, we're actually going to be looking at the whole of Genesis 1, but when I looked at actually putting all this on the screen, I was like, man, this is going to be about 20 slides just of Genesis 1. So what I'll do is just, I'll just read Genesis 1, 1 to 5, and then um, we'll touch on the rest of Genesis. Maybe, maybe we'll read a bit more of Genesis 1 next week. So Genesis 1, 1 to 5. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness was night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. So we're going to look at God's plan of creation. And last week, uh, Sarah preached on Genesis 1, uh, the first two verses of Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And, and she said that the simple sentence taught the nation of Israel seven really significant points. And here they are here. God was there at the beginning before all things. God created from nothing. God creates with intent and purpose. God is supreme. God is trinity is complete, sufficient and self-sustained. God is divine, creation is not. And God, God communicates. And these truths are no less significant for us today. <clears throat> and compared with the other creation narratives uh, that surrounded the people of Israel at the time, Genesis was really different. And uh, there's a, a Babylonian creation myth called the Enuma Elish. I think that's how you say it. And uh, it portrays a pantheon of gods. So, so it starts off with <clears throat> creation already existing. Matter already existing. <clears throat> There's a whole lot of gods that fight and squabble among themselves, and then they then they procreate and form other gods, <clears throat> and uh, and then they end up making humanity as a slave force to serve them. So you can see that Genesis one cuts right across that, right across it, and <clears throat> every belief outworks itself in our lives and, and I guess this is why I'm so concerned about some of the things that are happening in our society now. They're going to take a long time to outwork and, and it's going to be a long time before we see the, the fruits of these beliefs. <coughs> and it's hard to fully comprehend the magnitude of uh, what Genesis told the people of Israel uh, in the ancient world but this is what Tom Holland wrote. Humans shared in the dignity of the one God who had not, like Marduk, fought with a monster of the seas before embarking on his labour of creation, but had crafted the entire cosmos unaided and alone. So massive difference here. Instead of being a slave force, humanity was made in the image of God, created in the image of God. We had dignity that slaves did not. <clears throat> So not only did the Genesis story imbue all humanity with dignity, it would have also raised the self-perception of the Israelites. You remember they were in Egypt? They were a slave force in Egypt. So the, the idea that they were a slave force to, created to, to serve gods, well, yeah, here we are. <laughs> but Genesis says, no, you're not a slave force. I created you to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That's in Exodus 19. What a change in identity. You imagine being a slave in Egypt and someone comes along and says, 
God didn't create you to be a slave. He created you to be a holy priest. I want you to remember a holy priest because we're going to return to that again. <clears throat> and I was thinking, we're actually not that different where we are now to where the people of Israel were 3,000 years ago. The story of Genesis still cuts across our cultural narrative as well, which is not so different to the cultural narrative that they face. So we are told that we are gods now. We can choose what is right and wrong, and we are our own saviors. So there is still a pantheon of gods, right? It's us. And despite the fact that science tells us that the heavens and the earth had a beginning, the Big Bang, many people still believe that matter is eternal and therefore requires no supernatural beginning. <coughs> so matter is eternal, um, and we don't have to explain where it comes from. And I was thinking, now that we are gods, I think we have actually become slaves again to serve ourselves and meeting our own needs, right? And I think we can see that in society around us. Many people are becoming slaves to try and find their identity, trying to find their place in life, trying to figure out who they are. They're slaves to to meeting their own needs. So maybe hold fast to the revelation of Jesus. Our identity is given by God. We don't have to um, try and create it ourselves. Thank you, Dan. So with that background, let's turn our attention to the text for today. Genesis 1 and the first little bit of chapter 2. What an amazing passage. I love that. Let there be light. It's just so majestic. And then, boof, there it is. God creates. There's a guy called Bruce Waltke. And he's addressing where did Genesis come from? Who wrote it? Who's responsible for it? Obviously, God is responsible ultimately. But Bruce Waltke says, Who is the literary genius of this artistic masterpiece? <clears throat> Moses' superb training, exceptional spiritual gifts and divine call uniquely qualified him to compose the essential content and shape of Genesis and the Pentateuch. And some, the founder of Israel is the most probable person to transpose its national repository of ancient traditions into a coherent history in order to define the nation and its mission. So there we go. Moses, <clears throat> who was all, always uh, thought to be the author of Genesis, for about a hundred years, uh, it went through a lot of literary criticism and there was all sorts of different theories. But uh, that's largely been discredited according to um, Bruce Waltke and we're back again with Moses being the, the author of Genesis. Estimates of its range, um, estimates of its age range between 2,500 to 3,500 years old. Given this background... Um, I, I don't know what you think of Jordan Peterson. I, I really uh, admire and respect him. I certainly think he's an incredible intellect. But this is what he has to say. No matter how much time I spent assessing or analysing the stunningly brief accounts in Genesis, I always learned more and more and more without any indication that I'd come close to the bottom. This came and still comes as a tremendous surprise to me. It was not in the least what I expected, although I have spent three decades 
trying to explain and understand it, I believe I'm still far from an acceptable understanding. So this guy is one of the most intelligent guys uh, on the face of the earth today, and he spent three decades studying Genesis, and he still says he's far from an accepted understanding. How does that happen? Someone explain to me how that's possible. This text is 3,000 years old. How does that happen? I've, surely that's, that's like God is in there somewhere, right? <clears throat> this truly is a remarkable book. So where am I coming from approaching this text? My own journey with Genesis is one of a scientist trying to explain or reconcile Genesis 1 with what I knew of what science was telling me. That's, that's where I was. And I think largely most people are. They get told, Genesis 6 days of creation, ah, it's rubbish. And I was like, no, this, this is the Holy Scriptures, right? I can't just, I, I'm not going to wipe it off like that, like many people have. <clears throat> but how do I reconcile it? How do I I reconcile it with the age of the universe? How do I reconcile it with the evolutionary account of life? And it was a very difficult thing to do in the face of the scientific ridicule that I experienced at university, given the strong evidence of an ancient universe. But I was prepared to hold to a literal view of Genesis 1, if that's what it took to remain faithful to the Bible. Why? Because I figured... And, and I got taught that science only knows what it knows now. Right? So it's always open to new material. And I figure maybe they've got something wrong. So I don't know, I mean, many of us went through the whole fat debacle, right? In the old days, Dad said they used to get dripping from the old roast lamb and they used to smear it on bread and down it and it was all good. And you could eat fat and it was great. And then in the 80s, in my formative years, fat became bad. Fat was a swear word. You can't eat fat. Fat's bad. Fat has been linked with heart disease and cholesterol, and you can't eat fat. So, okay. So then we got rid of fat from our diet. Butter and cheese, bad. Cream, bad. Everything's bad, apart from, you know. Margarine was okay somehow. <clears throat> and we kept putting on weight, and we kept dying of heart disease. And then science discovered that there were good fats and bad fats. Hey, but it's good again. You can eat butter, cream. Yeah, that's awesome. Confusing, but okay. So I'm eating butter and cheese again. And the result of that, oh, the same with the eggs, right? Eggs are bad, you can't eat eggs. Oh no, eggs are good, you can't eat eggs. What? Why? What's going on here? It's that science only knows what it knows at that point in time, right? And then more studies are done and new material is found and then that's how science works. But for us, I think it's created a real distrust of science, right? I mean, it's, for me, I was like, I don't believe... When someone says, oh, good, new study says this. Really? I'm going to wait for a few years before I believe you. Because invariably, another study says something different. This is what John Lennox says. He's a professor of mathematics at Oxford University, so he's a real bright guy. Since God is both the author of his word, the Bible, and of the university, must ultimately be harmony between correct interpretation of the biblical data and correct interpretation of the scientific data. That's got to be true, right? So that's, um, that's what I believe. The question is, what is the correct interpretation of Genesis? Especially as over the last 30 years or so, there's been more evidence to support 
the ancient universe rather than less. <coughs> so there's multiple lines of evidence that say the universe is approximately 14 billion years old. There's a whole bunch of stuff I could go into, but I won't bore you with the details. But <coughs> this makes it really hard to hold to a, um, a young, like a 6,000-year-old creation. <coughs> so if we're going to believe in a 6,000-year-old creation, we need to either discredit all the scientific evidence or propose that God created the universe appearing to be old when it's actually young. So these difficulties lead us back to the text of Genesis itself. And we are left to ask the question, how are we to reconcile the biblical and scientific data given their vast apparent divergence? <clears throat> There's also a bigger question to be investigated though. What is the story about? What is the story of Genesis 1 about? <clears throat> and I've recently come across some material um, Sarah studied it when she was at, at Regent, but um, I, I read a book recently that has really just brought a whole lot of light to my understanding. I'm, go, I'm going to try not to to um, force my opinion on anyone, but I'm just going. I, I guess you'll, you'll be pretty clear which position I think is the most helpful and most accurate. <clears throat> so let's uh, delve into the text. Uh, the nature of the creation week is broken down into basically three sections. A statement regarding the creation of the heavens and the earth, <clears throat> the six days of God's creation and organisational activity, culminating in the creation of human beings made in his image, and the seventh day, the day of God's rest. And that's a really important one, that, the seventh day. So God begins with a world uh, without form and void and transforms it into a magnificent ordered and balanced universe. And man, I was standing underneath the stars last night. It's just incredible, isn't it? You look up into the heavens and the, the stars, man, they proclaim the magnificence of the Lord. So <clears throat> some people say that, that Genesis um, <clears throat> 1 verse 2 indicates that there was an initial creation <clears throat> before the actual um, creation week which means you can hold to an ancient universe and a literal uh, six-day creation. But a number of... Um, there's a, a Bruce Waltke says that the, the word for creation in Genesis always refers to the completed act. So uh, when Genesis 1 said, and God created the heavens and the earth, it's referring to the completed journey. So it includes the creation week. So I don't think that's really an option. Um, I guess some people hold to it. Uh, John Lennox does, which is interesting. <clears throat> so the chronology of the creation week uh, begins with the same pattern of and God said and ends with the statement and there was evening and there was morning and that's the such and such day. And any reader of Genesis 1 in any age uh, would be familiar with the most basic cycle of life, the human working week. And aren't we familiar with the human word of the week? God sets the pattern for us as a creative master craftsman, going about his working week, taking rest from evening until morning, and then taking a whole day of rest at the end of the week. And it's interesting, <clears throat> if you look at uh, Wikipedia, it's fascinating that the progress of creation 
broadly corresponds to the, the timeline currently accepted by science. <coughs> and um, I found an article in the Huffington Post of all things, which is quite a liberal publication. And it was entitled Genesis and Science, More Aligned Than You Think. And uh, this guy, uh, David Walper, reviewed the 12 elements of the biblical creation story and compared them to science and found that nine were scientifically correct. And this is what he wrote. The writers of the Bible somehow figured out that creation occurred first for the universe, then the earth, then light, then water, then land rising out of the water to separate land and sea, all in the proper order according to contemporary science. Then most amazingly of all, these ancient Hebrew scholars and Old Testament writers figured out in accordance with modern science, that the origins of life started in the water. Scientific information on the subject was not developed until over three and a half thousand years later. So it's not hard to try to get caught up trying to compare the creation narrative with modern science when there's this type of corroboration being observed. But is this what we should be doing? And I'll come back to that point later. Now, an important, a key issue in understanding the text of Genesis is the use of the word day. If the word day in the text means a literal 24-hour period, then on the face of it, it points us to a literal reading of the text. The Hebrew word for day is yom, and like day in our language can be used in a variety of meanings. And John Lennox points out that there are four uses of the word day. This is I mean, I'm geeking out on this stuff so if you don't, um, sorry but I'll just continue to geek out on this. Um, <clears throat> there are two uses of the word day here in Genesis 1 5. And God called the light day and the darkness is called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. It's easy to miss that God called the light day. What is the light? The light is when the sun's up, right? So that's roughly 12 hours, depending on where we are in the world. <clears throat> so here, the, the first use of the word day, yom, is actually 12 hours. That's with the light of the day, right? The second use, evening and morning, the first day, 24 hours. So in Genesis 1 5, we've got two uses of the word day. And in Genesis 2, we encounter another. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. And so on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. (coughs) Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. So there's no evening and morning here, right? Which means we're still on the seventh day. So how long is the seventh day? A very long time. (laughs) Right? We're still in it. That's cool. And finally, and this is a stuff, the kind of stuff that makes you, you read Genesis. Man, this is a sophisticated text. Hidden in Genesis 2 4 is the final use of the word day, which we can only see in Young's literal translation. Here it is. These are births of the heavens and of the earth, and they're being prepared in the day. Of Jehovah God's making heavens and and the earth. So this use of the word day is like in the day of the Lord, or back back in my day, would say. It's some unspecified length of time, 
you know. So when I was, you know, back in my day, we had dripping on our bread. <clears throat> it's a period of undefined length. So what have we got here? We've got four uses of the word day. So can we insist that the word day has to be a literal 24-hour period? It's hard, to, it's hard to justify that when the text itself says that there's four possible uses of the word. So that was mind-blowing to me. I've never, never seen that before. Now there's another um, kind of weird thing happening as well. <clears throat> uh, there's a, such a thing called a definite article, and it, in the English, it's use of the word that. <clears throat> That's all I know. Jenny might, might be able to explain a bit more, but... <clears throat> There's something weird going on with days 1 to 5 and days 6 and 7. And here it is. This is from the literal translation again. And there is an evening and there is a morning, day 5. There's no definite article. There's no the. But when we get to verse 6, the sixth day, and God says all that he has done, and lay very well. And there is an evening and there is a morning, day the 6th. So days 6 and 7 have the definite article, and days 1 to 5 don't. Why, why is that? If you were treating all the days the same, surely everyone would be the first the, That's the way it's translated into English, the first day, the second day. But according to this text, a better translation would be day 1, day 2, dot, 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 day 5, the 6th day, the 7th day. What does this mean? I think there's something special about days 6 and 7 compared with days 1 to 5. Maybe they're not supposed to be taken as literal 24-hour days. Otherwise, why aren't they all treated the same? So we can see, I mean, there's so much <laughs> we could go into here. There's so, much, so many ramifications of the text of Genesis 1. But... Um, there's just a few really interesting, I find really interesting things that if I knew 20 years ago, 30 years ago, when I was at university, it might have really helped um, me respond to some of the criticisms I was receiving. But here's another key point. Genesis was written for us, but not to us. <clears throat> and that the Bible was written for us, but not to us. <clears throat> Who were the intended audience of Genesis 1, or the whole book of Genesis? It was the people of Israel who lived about three and a half thousand years ago. So while it conveys timeless truths that apply to all ages and cultures, we need to be aware of our own preconceived ideas when reading this text. And uh, last week Sarah spoke of this when she talked about if we went to the Inuit people and tried to talk to them about knights and, and horses rescuing princesses, they'd be like, knights, what? Where's the days? Um, horses, what are horses? Where are the trees? Um, what? Um, and I thought of another way of illustrating this. Um, imagine that in 500 years' time there's a huge apocalypse and most of humanity is wiped out. And only a handful of people survive. And much of the knowledge gained uh, uh, is lost. And slowly the population starts growing again. And people try to recover the knowledge that was lost. <clears throat> in a thousand years in the future, two archaeologists uncover an ancient fragment of text. 
And after much study, they managed to decipher it. And it turns out that the words say, Oops, I did it again. I played with your heart, got lost in the game. And one archaeologist says, That's terrible. Ancient people cut out the hearts of other people and played games with them. And the other archaeologist says, Hey, hold on. Maybe it's just poetry. Maybe it's a figurative meaning. Does that illustrate what we're trying to do here? We all know about Britney Spears. We all we know about pop music. We, if, if we if they could come back to us and ask us, we'd say, "Yeah, man, that's a song by Britney Spears, and she's blah blah blah, blah and this is what it's about." But they can't do that, and we can't go back three and a half thousand years and ask uh, an Israelite, "What does this say to you?" And it would be amazing if we could do that, because I bet some incredible things would come to light. But we can't. So the scriptures were written for us, but not to us. And when we think about this, some things become immediately apparent. The ancient Israelites had no idea that the sun was a star, that the earth was spherical and moving through space, or that our solar system was part of a much greater constellation called a galaxy, and that there were billions of other galaxies in space. And while it's tempting to try and look for scientific stuff in the text of Genesis, this is what John John Bolton writes. Some Christians approach the text of Genesis as if it has modern science embedded in it, or dictates what modern science should look like. This approach is called concordism, as it seeks to give a modern scientific explanation for the details in the text. But if we accept that Genesis 1 is is ancient cosmology, then we need to translate it as ancient cosmology. If we can't try to turn it into modern cosmology, we are making the text say something that we have said. And if you're, if you're really interested in, in this whole topic of um, creation and how it relates to science and what is the right uh, interpretation of Genesis, I really recommend Lost World of Genesis 1. It's a fantastic book. This is the book that really turned on a lot of lights for me. So what's an example? In our world, we're very familiar with the concepts of natural processes and supernatural processes. We separate them, right? Well, rain, oh yeah, that's just uh, evaporation and condensing the clouds and rain again. But the ancient world had no concept of the separation of the natural and the supernatural. And they had no interest in them either. For them, every plant that grew, every baby born, every drop of rain and every climactic disaster was an act of a deity. In ancient Greek mythology, for example, Helios was the god and personification of the sun who drove across the sky in a chariot. And Sarah put up a slide last week to illustrate what ancient cosmology looked like. And here it is again. The world's flat. It's not, it's not a sphere. Uh, there's pillars holding up the earth. There's an underworld beneath our feet somewhere. There's a firmament with the stars, there's pillars of heaven, there's the ocean of heaven above that, because that's where the water comes from, and so on. This is what we should approach Genesis 1 with, this ancient cosmology in mind, because that's what was in the mind's mind of a three and a half thousand year old Israelite. So John Walton would say that a lot of what we've already discussed, in other words, the the correspondence of um, Genesis 1 with science 
uh, modern issues that we're placing on the text. <clears throat> and we should not expect the text to address them. <clears throat> and a key point in John Walton's book that I found very helpful is that our modern world is fixated with material things. But the ancient world was fixated by function within an ordered system. So, here's an example. If I said, please create something for me. Please create something for me. What would you, what would you make for me? Okay, okay. yeah. Uh, a fence? Yep. Anything else? Palm. Good, yeah. Cool. That's it. <laughs> yeah, interesting. Yeah, that's good. See, most of those were physical things, weren't they? Cake, um, fence. They were physical, material things. And then we started to get into some of the non-physical things, like a mortgage. <laughs> I don't think I really want another mortgage next to <clears throat> So, the ancient Israelites were not at all interested in material origin. They took it as um, there was no separation of the, the natural and the supernatural. They were more interested in what's it for, what's its function, what's its role. So they would have no interest at all that the, in the fact that the, the sun is a ball of burning hydrogen 150 million kilometres away. They would be far more interested in the role of the sun for humanity and human society. <clears throat> and how do we know all this? Well, there are a bunch of ancient Near Eastern texts giving information about creation. <clears throat> one, of the, one of them is the Enuma Elish, which we came across earlier. And incredibly, there is nothing in the Enuma Elish that refers to material creation. Nothing. Not interested. It's all about function and role. And, and what's this there for? What's its purpose? <clears throat> So we tend to think of the cosmos as a machine and argue about whether something is, someone is running the machine or not. And the ancient world viewed the cosmos like a kingdom. Whether there was a king or not wasn't even in question. So, where have we arrived? What's the story of Genesis 1 about? So there are two main positions. How God created the cosmos, and within that, there's a whole bunch of different options. <clears throat> there's a literal six-day creation 6,000 years ago, um, and from the use of the word day in Genesis, I think that's that, that's what I that's the position I used to hold. But as time gone on, and particularly not so much the science but the text itself, I think that's a hard position to hold based on the fact that there's so many uses of the word for day in Genesis. But it is a, 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 has advantages in that it's a lot easier to um, maintain. Uh, it doesn't um, bring a lot of other theological issues like if the, if the earth is ancient, then there was death before the fall of Adam and Eve. So how do we explain that? That is explainable, but it's not, an op- not a problem for the literal Jews. And then there's the day-age view where the creation days are in chronological order and each represent a period of time of unspecified length. So the day-age view can accommodate an ancient universe, um, but as we have seen, the creation days don't exactly match with current scientific understanding. 
And are we actually asking the wrong question? Are we actually, is the text of Genesis really about how God created the heavens and the earth? Given that the ancient world was not interested in material origin at all. And the second uh, answer is that Genesis 1 is about why God created the heavens and the earth. And I think this is, for me, this is on much firmer ground. It's based on archaeological investigations of other ancient Near Eastern creation stories, virtually none of which are concerned with material origin at all. Instead, it argues that the ancient world was concerned with function. And last week, Sarah talked about, in the beginning, God, and saw that Genesis is actually a story about God. And the take-home point for us is that it's really important to ask the Lord to help us keep him at the centre of our lives so that our lives are God-centred, not us-centred. And in looking at these two positions, I'm struck that actually how God created the the cosmos is kind of us-centred. It's based on, it's unconsciously us-centred, right? Because what's important to us is how. Where did this material stuff come from? Right? So it's kind of us. We don't even realise that we've made it us-centred. But I think we have. So the second interpretation seems to be on much firmer ground when it begins with the question of how the ancient Israelites would have understood, understood this passage. <clears throat> and it's astounding where this journey ends. John Walton says that if the story of Genesis is about material origins, the seventh day is mystifying. If it's about how God created the heavens and the earth, what's up with day seven and he rested? Nothing going on there, material, you know. God's not doing anything creative there. It's like a tap-on day, like, oh, we need another day to round out uh, seven-day week. Oh, no, I have a day of rest. But a reader from the ancient world would understand immediately what the role of day seven was. And this is where it gets fascinating. Deity rests in a temple, and only in a temple. This is what temples were built for. We might even say that this is what a temple is, a place for divine rest. Perhaps even more significant, in some texts, the construction of a temple is associated with cosmic creation. Whoa! Genesis 1 is about the creation of a temple. Isn't that cool? Isn't that incredible? Why did he choose to create the heavens and the earth? He wanted a temple for himself. The whole cosmos is his temple, and the earth is the holy of holies. We started with what's God's plan for creation? That's God's plan for creation. He created to make a temple for himself. And in day seven, he took up residence in that temple. So that makes day seven the most important day of all. Isn't that cool? I just, man, I'm, that's incredible. Isn't that such a grander and more beautiful and more profound story than arguing about how stuff was made? I, I just think that, man, that's awesome. There is a plan for creation. There's a reason why God created the heavens and the earth. It's a temple. 
So we're going to delve more deeply into this idea of the cosmos being the temple of God next week. So it has some huge ramifications. And remember the holy priesthood? Doesn't that make more sense now? We're in the holy of holies. We're as, we're as priests in the temple. That's why God created the heavens and the earth. Let's pray. Lord God, we are in awe of your plan for creation. We are in awe of your plan for us, Lord. A kingdom of priests and a holy nation to minister in your temple. Lord, we can't get any more significant than that. Lord, we worship you and we honour you and thank you for the story, the story of creation. Thank you, Lord, that you have a reason for creating the universe and us. And it's all part of your beautiful plan. And one day, Lord, you will overcome the fall and you will return in a a wonderful way and we will see you face to face and we will dwell together in your temple. We worship you and we honour you, Lord God. In Jesus' name.